Welcome to the Village Church Podcast. Thanks for stopping by and taking the time to listen. We've prayed that this podcast channel blesses and encourages the Village family. So lean in with an open heart, eager to grow, and enjoy the episode. All right. Good morning, church. I don't get to do this super often, so it's a, it's a privilege. Um, it's also been a manic few weeks, so I'm kind of like, am I ready? I am. I'm ready. I had this ready about three weeks ago, and I've ummed and about whether I should go the direction that I'm going and if it's what God's asking me to, to, to speak about a bit. And honestly, the more I've wrestled with it, the more settled I am that this is where we're going. So um, hopefully you don't get offended. <laughs> Some of you will. I'm sorry. But I care about truth. I really care about truth. And, and, I, and I believe it's true. And I believe it's what this, well, one of the things that this passage um, that we're looking at today speaks to. So that's why we're going to go there. So I have the privilege today of um, speaking on the story of Gideon. This is the, the, the third in the series um, on Judges. But it's also been three weeks since we did our last one. So it's like, is it a series? Uh, it is. But we're going to need a bit of a reminder. And in terms of the title today, it's going to be a, a pick a path title. So if we go to the next slide, please. It's a pick a path title today. You can choose what words you want to go in there. So it could be Gideon, a, a careful, courageous coward, or, or Gideon, a cynical champion, or Gideon, a compliant cynic. What will you choose? Pick your own path. You could even put in uh, complicit if you wanted to, but that gets into chapter eight and we're not going to go there just yet. That's for Liam next week. So um, have fun with that, Liam. These are seemingly contradictory or a number of them are seemingly contradictory, but the more I've thought about and wrestled with the story, I think they're cohesive. Like they're not all positive, but they're cohesive. And we're going to explore that a little bit today. Um, Gideon is a story of a man who is commissioned to do a task. And it's not a little task. It's not like, oh, God spoke to me and I really think I should give $20 to the guy washing windows at the traffic lights. Eh, if you get that wrong, it doesn't really matter, right? You're out 20 bucks and you've done something nice. This is more of a big task. More like, let's cancel the super rugby season in the middle of a pandemic. Hypothetically speaking. You know, the sort of thing that, that, that might make an entire community or country despair dislike you. I was going to say despise. That's probably a little bit strong for church. Dislike you. Hypothetically speaking, something like that. You know, it's a, it's a big call, not a little call. It's a story of a man who receives this high stakes commission from God, who seeks confirmation that this really is from God, and then obeys to the smallest detail with courage and conviction. So it's been a few weeks and we need a recap. Some of you may have missed the, the beginning of it, so let me do a really quick sum up of where we're at so far. So what do we know about uh, the book of Judges? If we just jump onto the next slide, please. There's these cycles of rebellion, retribution, repentance, and rescue that happen seven times throughout the book. So the people do evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's this phrase that's repeated multiple times. They follow foreign gods. And then God sends the, their enemies to um, come and wallop them, to take over, to, to subdue them. And then to the point that the people get sick of it and go, God, why have you abandoned us? We're so sorry. And then God raises up a judge and rescues them. And that cycle happens again and again and again. Liam introduced some of the, um, the history to that and the, the stuff that was the catalyst for that. 
it was the issue was when the Israelites had come into this promised land, God told them to drive out all of the people that lived there with all of their foreign gods, and they didn't. And then we get consequences for that. And he, he raised three really important points that I think are worth repeating here. He talked about cultural compromise, where they became accustomed to pagan practices. Then they were attracted to them. Then they adopted them. And ultimately, they abandoned God and obviously drew parallels to our contemporary culture and the ways that we do that as well. He talked about the generational mandate for us to teach children the ways that they should go. What is it? Remember, kids, Remember. God did this. Remember how God did this? God is faithful. The idols that one generation tolerates, the next generation embraces, he said. And related to that, he talked about gospel amnesia. Like the Israelites, the greatest threat to Christian faithfulness is Christian forgetfulness. That was a great sermon, man. It's really good. Mark looked at the story of Deborah, the prophetess judge of Israel who, at the word of God spoken through her, raised up an army under her general barrack of 10,000 people who then went and smashed the Canaanites. And she told Barak that God wanted to do this, and Barak's response was, I'll do it if you come with me. Remember Barak, I'm going to come back to him a little bit later on, just briefly. It turns out that God is pretty serious about his people being faithful to him, having no other gods before him. And it's like a naughty child, right? If your child is naughty, you discipline them so that they learn the right way to go. What does it look like for a loving father, God, with his child, an entire nation of Israel, to smack their bum when they're naughty? It looks like this. Here, your enemies can have you for six years. That's a nation-sized smack bum. And it brings correction. There's this theme through the book of God's faithfulness and the people's unfaithfulness. God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful. So that's where we're up to for now. There's one other thing that I want to briefly touch on before we get into the story of Gideon as well. It's something that we haven't talked about yet. And that's what are some of the kind of interpretive considerations that we need to think about when we're looking at this kind of biblical text? This is historical narrative, right? It it is. It's historical narrative. Yes, Peter, it's historical narrative. (laughs) But it's important because it's a story of what happened, not, not, not necessarily what should have happened. That means when we read these stories, it's not an exemplar of how we should live. Oh, I should grow my hair really long, then I'll be strong. No, that's not how we read it. It's a story of what happened. The hero of the story is not Gideon or Samson or David or any of the other characters. The hero of the story is God. God is the hero of the story. And then finally, there's these, these layers to the story. So there's this, this bottom level layer, which is the individual account of Gideon doing some stuff with a fleece and some bad guys. And then there's this middle layer, which is the story of God calling his people, the Israelites, into relationship with him, rescuing them, teaching them, growing them, and ultimately um, uh, embracing us as part of that, as the children of Abraham, right? Becoming part of his family. And then there's the top level, which is about God creating everything, making us because he loves us and wants relationship for us, sin separating us from God, and then his plan of rescue to redeem all of creation back to himself. 
And all three of those things are taking place when we read historical narrative. So we need to think about all these things when we look at any one story. If we don't, if we forget to do that, we miss bits. In that bottom layer, in this story, it's a story of God's faithfulness and, and Gideon's unfaithfulness. In the middle level story, it's a story of God's faithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness. In that top level story, it's a story of God's faithfulness and our unfaithfulness. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. We're not. You know, I've, um, I've been challenged in more recent years to look at not the heroes, not the great pe- the people who do amazing things of faith, but the people who, who walk faithful lives of obedience to God. And so like, people like Ken, like increasingly people like Ken are becoming my heroes because it's so hard. It's, I think it's, it's almost easier to be faithful and obedient in a moment and go, well, hey, look at what I did. Look at what God did through me. That's incredible. But to do that faithfully day after day after day in the mundane and the boring and the tragedy, and the, that's a really difficult thing. God is faithful even when we're not. You know, he um, just, I don't want to go on about it, Ken, but... When I did my master's, he, he said to me, hey, do you want me to read your thesis? I went, oh, yes, please. Dr. Ken, that would be great. And, and he read it. And do you know what he did? He went through the entire, it was in theology. He went through and every single Bible verse that I had in my thesis, he looked up to make sure I'd got the right one. And he found a couple of mistakes. It's pretty amazing. All right, so let's get into the story, eh? So we're going to read an entire chapter. I haven't put the entire chapter up there. Um, You can follow along in Judges chapter 6, but I have put a few key verses along the way. All right, here we go. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to, to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian. He sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came down under the oak at, in Ophrah that belongs to Joash the Abezerite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. It's almost like he's teasing him. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. 
But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of the Midianites. Like Tia, he had heard the stories but hadn't had the personal revelation. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering to set before you. And the Lord said, I'll wait until you return. Gideon went inside and prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire fled from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. And it stands to this day in Ophrah of the Abyssalites. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished and the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowds around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jeroboam that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. Now all the Midianites and Malachites and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abezerites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms and also to Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali, so that they too would meet up with him. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, pause, look, I'll place a wool fleece on the threshing floor 
If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground around it is dry, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. And that night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. Now, chapter seven is kind of the climax, and I'm not going to read it. Very briefly, all these Israelites from the various tribes come and gather, and there's too many of them. This victory isn't going to be Gideon's victory. It's going to be God's victory because he's the hero. So under God's guidance, Gideon says to them, hey, if you're scared, you can go home. So a whole bunch of them go home. And then God says, there's still too many. Send them down to have a drink. When they got down to the stream and had a drink, some of them drank in different positions. And the ones that scooped the water up in their hands and drank it said, okay, you can keep them. There were 300 left. Now there's sermons about, oh, because they were the alert soldiers and stuff like that. Rubbish. Like you can make that claim if you want, but... It's a story about what happened, not what should have happened. There's no deep kind of metaphorical meaning here. They're just having a drink. This was a methodology to cull the number of soldiers so there's only 300. So he couldn't have done it without God. Then they're standing in the hills around where the Midianites are camped. And God says to him, says to Gideon, go down into the camp so that you will have courage to attack. So he goes down, sneaks in there. And he hears one of the soldiers talking to another soldier and he's telling him about a dream. And he said, man, I had this dream. There was this loaf of bread. Why is it a loaf of bread? I've got no idea. It was rolling down a hill and it smashed into the camp and absolutely destroyed us. And the other guy, logically, goes, oh, that must be Gideon. Okay. Yeah, that must be Gideon because God's with him and he's going to destroy us. Okay, that's an interesting interpretation from a random soldier having a chat with another soldier, but it worked for Gideon. He was stoked. He was going, man, this is from God. This is really going to happen. So he runs back up the hill and he goes, guys, I've got an amazing plan. Doesn't say how we got the plan. It's clearly from God because this is not normal. I'm going to give you all a trumpet. So trumpets are the, the rallying guys, right? So if you've got groups of soldiers and you've got somebody blowing a trumpet, they go, oh, come over here, guys, follow me, like a banner bearer or something like that. So there would be multiples. You'd have one trumpet player for a number of soldiers. And he gave them all a torch, which they hid so that the light wouldn't shine. And he split them into groups of a 100. And he told them to go to different points around the camp. And on Gideon's um, word, they said, for the Lord and for Gideon. And they uncovered the, the torches and they blew their trumpets. And so if you're the guys on the inside of the camp, you're going, wow, that's a lot of trumpets. There must be heaps of soldiers, not just the 300. So they get up in their their pajamas and they're running around with their swords going, where are these guys? And they see other guys running at them with swords. Don't notice that they're also wearing pajamas and they start hacking at each other. The Israelites don't even have to fight them. They run away in disarray. Then the Israelites, all of them follow them all the way down to the Jordan River. They kill them and they capture the Jordan River. God's victory. Definitely not Gideon's victory. There's so much in that story. (laughs) 
so much. We could talk about um, a man hiding from his enemies, preparing the wheat, when an angel appears and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. You know, God calls us into our future and for a purpose. He sees the statue in the stone. A mighty warrior? Not so much. Although there's some suggestion that maybe he was actually more wealthy than what you know, the story suggests, but it's a separate discussion. We're not going there, so we don't need to talk about it. Um, Gideon was first required to destroy the foreign gods in their midst before God used them to, to have this mighty victory. What does it look like for our hearts? What are the idols that we need to put to death before God can use us? We could go there, but we're not going to. We could talk about this offering that he bought, that the, this food, he makes him a meal which has unleavened bread, kind of like an offering. And he places it before him, kind of like an offering. And it's put on a rock, kind of like an offering. And then the, guy, the, the, the angel touches it with the stick and it's consumed, like an offering. When we offer ourselves to God, he takes all of us and then will use us for his purposes. We could do that too, that'd be pretty cool, but we're not going to talk about that. And there's this parallel between Moses and Gideon. God commissions them both to save his people from suffering and oppression. They both consider themselves to be unqualified. They both ask for signs and God gives it. And yet we often throw Gideon under the bus for testing God. God calls the lowly and empowers them. He's the hero of the story. We'll touch on that a little bit, but we're not going there either. Where are we going? We're going on this. Logically, I know that you would have known that I was going there. This is what we're going to talk about today. The Lord said to him. That doesn't sound very exciting, Peter. I think we can probably do better than that. See, in the story of Gideon, it's a story of a man listening to God's voice, hearing what he's saying, gaining assurance that it's actually God speaking to him, and then acting with courage and conviction. And I really struggle in this space. And I think that many of us do. I don't think I'm alone. What does it mean to hear the voice of God? To actually hear the voice of God? We hear people talk about it. What does that mean? And so we're going to unpack that a little bit. And the irony is that as we talk about this, um, I'm hoping, I'm, I'm believing that God will speak through me to you at the same time. So maybe that's one way. <laughs> In this story, God speaks through a prophet. He speaks through an angel who then is referred to as the Lord. So the Lord, first of all, it's an angel speaking, then it's the Lord speaking, and then he realizes it was an angel. Huh. That's a bit weird. Then the angel disappears, and then the Lord speaks to him. What on earth does that mean? The angel's gone. Now who's doing the talking? What's happening here? Gives him instructions and stuff, and they have this conversation. When I was preparing this, um, I went and had a chat to Brian Woodford and Lynn joined us for a bit of the conversation as well. And there's a reason that I went to speak specifically to Brian. In terms of those, those faithful men, he's another one of them in our midst. And we were discussing, what does this mean when God's speaking? Like, is God actually speaking? And, and this is kind of, we thought it was probably something like this. God speaks to us in words, into our brain, but it doesn't go through our ears and it's not our imagination. Something like that. Not super helpful, but that's kind of experientially, that's the, 
that's the thing. Like it's not just, sometimes there's impressions, but we're not talking about impressions here. We're talking about God saying something and almost a conversation occurring. What does that mean? Well, there's words, but they're not. If I was sitting next to him, I couldn't have heard them because they weren't audible words. But they were still words, not imagination, not imaginary words. But then God also confirms what he said, and he confirms it through miracles. Um, But there's the complication of Gideon testing God in the process, and he knows he's testing God. He goes, God, don't be angry. Don't be angry. Initially, he says, hey, Mr. Angel Man, can you give me a sign? The angel does it. The food is burned up. When he asks for the next lot of tests with the fleece, that's after the Spirit of God has come upon him. So he's been empowered for this task. The Spirit of God has come and filled him, and then he needs a test. Then he needs proof. God, come on, tell me, please. Like I'll, I'll do this. Whew. And God still did it. He says, don't be angry with me. Let me make one more request. And God still did it. And then after that, when he wasn't even asking for any more assurance, God gives him another sign. Go down into the camp. Go down to the camp. I've got some encouragement for you. Then you'll be able to do it. And man, when he's sure, it takes a bit of making him sure, but once he's sure, gee, he's prepared to do weird, crazy stuff because he knows that's what God's told him to do. God's the hero of the story. Early in my life, um, I, I remember hearing people, particularly in kind of prayer meetings and that sort of thing in a church context, saying or discussing with each other about hard decisions and they're praying about it and somebody will say, oh, just lay a fleece, brother, lay a fleece. And then having, you know, studied theology <laughs> quite a lot, um, I'm, I think back and cringe about those comments. Like, the whole point of the story is don't do that. Don't test the Lord your God. That's why he's saying don't be angry with me. But God is still gracious in the midst of that. But this time round of looking at it, I've actually, I've, I've grown a bit more compassion towards Gideon and the way that he's, the way that he's approached this. He's being asked to do something really, really, really big. And he's certainly flirting with the testing God line. But we are told to test the word of God. 1 John 4.1 says this, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There's a difference between testing God and testing what we hear from God. Is it from God? It's appropriate to engage our brains. So there's a principle here, I think, that relates to the way that we, we hear God. How does God speak to us? How do we hear from God? We listen. So we're, we're actively going, oh, is God speaking? We hear it, we understand it. Oh, that's what, it, that's what I'm hearing. That's, those are the words or the whatever it is. Confirm it. This is the bit where you're going to get grumpy with me, some of you. Especially if it's something high stakes. If the thing you think you're, getting, like you're hearing is give 20 bucks to the window washer, just do it. It's a good thing to do. Oh, God, did you really say that? Who cares? Maybe you miss out on lunch today. And then you act. So about 10 years ago, um, I was on holiday with my family in New Plymouth, and I got a phone call from my best mate, who many of you will know, Daz Chettle. Yeah, and he's going to be here in a couple of weeks, that's right. And he's re- recently written uh, about this story in his book, so I feel like I'm allowed to share it now. He'll tell me later if I wasn't. 
maybe he'll share it then as well. Um, I got a phone call from him saying, mate, it's all over. Me and my wife, we're breaking up. It's not going to happen. There's all these issues, blah, 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 blah. And I said, wait there, I'll get on a plane. So I got on a plane. I was down there within a few hours. And I sat with him and I just heard what was going on. I heard the stories. They had kids and, I mean, family is a big deal to me. Uh, It should be a big deal to all of us, but it's something I've spent a long time studying. And I could see that it was over and that it was probably for the best, which takes a lot to make me say. And then that night, I was lying on a couch in, uh, in his lounge. He was in bed. It was about two o'clock in the morning. And I'm awake, and I'm just lying there praying for him. And I had this weird feeling. I'm not a shaker and a baker, right? I'm the guy who sits back there with my arms folded, just like you. I can see you're smiling, so you're not a grumpy guy. But when the, when, when the, the, the guys are up here doing the huh, I'm like, oh, cool. Look, they're, they're playing make-believe. I'm that guy. And I'm lying there on the, on, the, on the couch, and I start kind of doing this thing. I'm like, what the heck? I kind of felt like a mix between shivering and adrenaline. That was how it felt. And I'm like, well, this isn't normal. Um, it's probably God. And so I prayed, God, if you want to use me, use me, but make me a clean vessel. And then I just started asking him to forgive me for, for stuff and just make me, you know... Use me at my best. Don't use me at my average. And once I did that, I, it got more, and I knew I needed to stand up and go and get Darren. So I went into his room. I said, he was actually awake, so I said, hey, can you come out into the lounge? He came out, and as he walked out, I turned around, and I put my hand on him on the shoulder like this, about that hard. And I said, Darren, the Spirit of God is on me. And I didn't know how else to describe it. It was like, I felt like some Old Testament prophet. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Look, the Holy Spirit lives in me. I'm a Christian. That's part of my birthright. But the Holy Spirit still empowers us for specific acts or, or tasks. And, and then I just said all of this stuff. And I was participating in it. I knew what I was saying, but it wasn't from me. And it wasn't nice, warm, fluffy stuff. It was, when did you last come and kneel at the cross before me like the child you are? When did you last ask me to hold, uh, let, let me hold you in my arms? You'll only find your purpose and comfort in me. It was stuff like that. And he, later he said to me, when you aggressively laid your hands upon me in the middle of the night and prophesied over me, I knew that the God who had thrown the stars in the sky was looking at me and he was grumpy. And the next day, his wife came around. She was picking up some stuff. And he went out and he turned the keys off in the car. And he said, we've got to sort this out. And that was, it was, it's not like a, oh, look, we saw something tangibly, you know, a body part grow that wasn't there or something like that. But it was a real, legit miracle. That was the start of their relationship being healed. And it was the beginning of his ministry that, that was there today. And what a privilege to be in that place and be used by God in the process. About three years ago, I was, four years ago, I was finishing up my PhD. I'd had a a national Christian ministry talking to me for about a year saying, we need a new CEO, would you come and do this thing? It'd be a great fit. I'd been going and hanging out with them, getting to know them a little bit, developing kind of strategic thoughts around it. I was praying about it and I thought, 
and I felt like God had said to me that this is your job. This is for you. Not at some point in the future, not a job like it, not a job, maybe something similar one day, this job, this time now. So there's no wriggle room for my interpretation of it, right? And I talked to a whole bunch of other people and they all thought, it's a great fit. Yeah, it makes sense. But a couple of people, mature Christians said to me, I've been praying for you and I really think this is from God, that, this is, that God is saying this is for you. And then I didn't get the job. I didn't even know they were talking to anybody else. And that rocked me because the way that I thought I heard from God, um, I didn't. Or, so there's three things, right? Three, three ways logically you can interpret that. Either God's a liar, we discount that for obvious reasons, from a logic perspective. Um, I didn't hear from God, or I did hear from God, but God's will can be undermined by a sinful world, by people. And those are three really bad options. And, and so part of that process, part of my wrestling with it was, uh, I spoke to a bunch of people, but um, Brian Woodford, which is why I went to have a talk to him. And, and he said to me, um, we're, this, this idea that God is always speaking, we just need to listen. Um, I don't know where it comes from. It's not biblical. Hear me up. Don't shut off yet. Um, God doesn't try to speak. He either speaks or he doesn't. And there, there are instances in the Bible where it talks about the people not listening to God. But when they say not listening, it doesn't mean not hearing. It means not obeying. It's a different thing. And, and what Brian was talking about and what I experienced is that, that, that special, specific hearing from God, tangible stuff, right? There's a difference between that and the God revealing himself through nature, constantly speaking us, through us in scripture, the fact that we are transformed by a renewing of our minds so that we'll know his will. All of those things, that is our conscience. Those are all ways that God speaks and guides us. But it means specific Specific guidance, God speaking to us specifically, it's not normal. It's amazing, and it happens, and God does it, but it's not the norm. And that helped me a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. Even though I'm the good shepherd, and my sheep know my voice, I call to them, they know me, and they follow me. Yeah, we know him like a shepherd, as in, come follow me. Not like, oh, you should eat that blade of grass. What about that blade of grass? You guys should be, you should talk to that. Like, it's not that specific. But we also, oh, I th- that process of confirming, well, I mean, I tried to confirm that it was God that I'd heard. And I thought I had. And even that was wrong. But it doesn't mean that the principle's wrong. Yeah? We still need to apply some caution here. Remember, Gideon is not an exemplar of how we should act in terms of the testing God stuff. Um, but we can look and learn from the way that God responds to him. The reality is that despite the fact that Gideon tested God, he's still noted as a man of faith. Moses asked God for a sign and was given it. Barak, the guy I told you I'd come back to, wanted to confirm that this was legitimately from God. Deborah, if you really, really, really believe that it's from God, I'll do what you say but you need to have some skin in the game here. Come with me. Now he lost some of his blessing as a result of it, but it didn't mean that he was less faithful. Well, maybe it did. It didn't mean that he wasn't a man of faith. That's a better way of saying it. Hebrews 11. 
at the end of this massive list of people of faith, including Moses, we read, and what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon or Barak or Samson, Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Barak and Gideon are both in that list right there. The men who sought confirmation, who we throw under the bus for their unfaithfulness. They're listed as men of faith. I think it's fair to say, if you're not sure if it's God, find out. If it's a big thing. Or just give the guy 20 bucks for washing your windows. So I think there's some risks. On one hand, we might become overly cynical. This is where I live. I try not to. Was it really God? Did he really say that? That scripture was only for the original audience. Like, it helps me to learn about God, but it doesn't really directly apply to my situation. Or maybe the Holy Spirit's highlighting it for you. Maybe it does. Not generally speaking, but for you in this moment. We become cynical of anyone saying that God has laid something on their hearts. What the heck does that mean? That's me. Oh, yeah. That's me. That's not healthy, but it's me. On the other hand, we might feel like God is always talking, like specifically talking, detailed talking. If only we would listen. We read the scriptures and we see stories of God speaking and we think that that should be our everyday, forgetting that that's the highlight reel of over 2,000 years. It's not normal. For these people, every yellow car that drives past them is a confirmation of whatever it is that God's talking to them about at the moment. God, just let a yellow car go past if. Now, I'm more critical of that one because that's not me, right? You can do the same thing to me. It's okay. I think both the reality and a healthy position for us to sit in is somewhere in the middle. So for people like me, the challenge is to guard our hearts against becoming cynical and instead be critical. Critical is not a bad thing. Critical thinking is a good thing. The difference is that the cynic is trying to prove that something is false. The critical thinker is testing to see if something is true. And that's a really important distinction. And for those at the other end of the spectrum, um, the challenge is to do the same, to be a little bit critical to, is it really true? Don't just assume. Use your brain a bit. Okay, so here's some practical bits, okay? What does it look like? What does what testing if something is from God actually look like? Practically speaking. Consistency. Does this align with the teaching of Scripture? If it doesn't, move on. Disregard. You were wrong. Discipleship. Does this decision or action make me more like Jesus? What are other Christians, other mature Christians, what do they think about this? You know, just because you find one mature Christian who thinks it's an amazing idea, or two who believe that it's from God, like me, doesn't necessarily mean that it's it. But it, it's all part of this, you know, the, the testing, confirming process. How does this stack up along the other things that God's been talking to me about or challenging me on? Is it consistent? And conscience, what's my gut feel here? I think that's actually important. I mean, you don't let your gut rule. That would be really, really bad. But I think conscience actually has a, uh, an important role to play. 
And then finally, um, I think there's some issues around language. And if somebody tells me that they have a word from God for me, you can probably imagine where my mind goes. I try to be gracious, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm naturally wired to go, oh, yeah, we'll see, we'll see. Cool. Thanks, man. Go for it. I once had a guy with a recognized prophetic gift in my house. He was having lunch with us, and he said, oh, I guess you want to know what God's saying to you, do you? I'm like, heck yes. Who wouldn't want to know that? Yeah, that's kind of what we're talking about here. It's like, how do we know? And so he started saying this stuff. And then he paused, and he goes, you don't give much away, do you? And my response was, well, it's either God or it's not. You see, God doesn't need cues or prompts or, or insight, background information. He doesn't need us to do little micro nods or anything. That's what psychics do. Yeah, we're not playing games. It's either God or it's not. And if it's God, I want it. And if it's not, stop playing games. Let's not play make-believe. And so when it comes to language, like this is a nuanced thing. It's a nuanced conversation because we have to test it in our own hearts and then we're spilling it out of our mouths and telling it to somebody else. And there's, there's so much complexity. And we so often don't use nuanced language. Constantly in church contexts, we say, I had a word or I get an impression that or God has laid it on my heart that or I just feel that. And if you've grown up in a church context, you know that that's Christianese for God is saying or God has told me with slightly softer language. Maybe he has. Maybe he hasn't. I think there's, there's, some, there's some challenges that come with that. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that, but we need to be really aware of what's happening when we say it. The challenges are that if we, we can blindly accept that this is God, And if it's not, then we make him out to be a liar. That's high-stake stuff. That's why prophets were stoned when they got things wrong in the the Old Testament. The flip side is, if I'm being super critical all the time, when when, when somebody is saying, oh, you know, I just have this impression, or God's laid this on my heart, if I'm being super critical all the time, then I'm creating an environment that's going to discourage people from from being obedient to actually speaking what God has told them to say. So what does that mean for a community of faith like ours where we have to walk this line between setting a high standard where actually if you're going to say that God's speaking, you better know that God's speaking and being gracious and providing an opportunity of humility where people can come and share that without feeling like, oh man, I better get this right. But you better. That's not easy. So that's Mark's job. And then the final thing and the final risk with this is that if we're often saying, I get this feeling or I get this impression that or, you know, whatever the pseudonyms are that we're using for God has spoken to me, that we automatically assume that this is one of those special particular speaking moments. This is where God has put words into your brain and now you're speaking them out your mouth. That's what we think. And so we're sitting here hearing people say this and we're going, man, God speaks a lot, doesn't he? Why doesn't he speak to me? Not like that. Like, I know I can read the Bible. I know I sometimes feel like I should do something, but why doesn't he speak to me? Because most of the time he's not speaking like that to the person who's saying it either. That doesn't mean that he's not speaking. But it's usually not one of those words in your brain, out your mouth, empowered by the Holy Spirit moments. And so that means that the words that we use when we're communicating that God is speaking to us, we need to be really careful that we're saying what we actually mean. 
And I use this super clunky thing on the odd time that I feel like God is asking me to say something to somebody. It's clunky, but it settles my conscience. I'll say, hi, I'm Peter. I'm not a crazy, super spiritual person. I don't use imagination lots, but I've had this thought that's come into my head and I can't shake it and it has no context. And so I think it must be from God. And I think it's for you. So I'm going to tell you what it is, and you've got three options. You can either go, well, this guy's just said something really nice and encouraging. That's nice. Or you can say, wow, God spoke to me. It's confirmation of everything, blah, 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 whatever. Or you can go, (laughs) that dude is crazy. Kids, stay away from him. (laughs) And I'm okay with any of those options, as long as I've set the scene correctly so that they're not thinking, this dude's going to download from God for me, and I'm still being obedient. We need to be really careful. Saying nice stuff is really nice. But if it's nice stuff, let's be honest and say, I've got something really nice to tell you. If it's God, then it's God. And I want that. So what are the takeaways? This is the last slide. The times when God speaks clearly and specifically are not the norm, but they do happen. It's not normal. Might only be two or three times in your life. God also speaks more generally, all the time. He speaks through, through scripture, he speaks through nature, he speaks through our conscience. In a corporate context, there's this settledness sometimes when you hear something that it doesn't grate. I thought this morning, the example of the, um, the anxiety stuff was an example of that. It didn't grate. That's not always true. Sometimes I sit here going, oh, that's a bit awkward. But for me, and maybe it's just me, but there's this corporate thing that, that is... God does use that. It's okay to test that something is from God, but it's not okay to test God. Sometimes a fine line, conscience might play a part in that, right? But it's important. Language matters. If we're going to share that something is from God, we need to be really careful of what we mean by that so we don't give the wrong impression and ultimately that we don't impugn God as a liar. But finally... The thing that's weaved all the way through this book. God is faithful, even when we're not. And we're not, so often. Let me pray. Lord God, I I thank you that you are faithful. I thank you that you do speak. I thank you that you do have personal relationships with us individually and walk with us and reveal yourself to us and prompt us in different ways. And thank you that... You will, you will speak to each and every person here. But I, and I pray that it'll be more of that specific, more of that, oh my goodness, God, download. That's amazing. But I pray also, Lord, that, that we would be motivated by truth and motivated by a real relationship with you and not play make-believe. Let us not miss it when you're really there as well, Lord. Forgive me, forgive those like me for being cynics and being critical when it's really you. And forgive us for pretending it's you when it's not. Work in us, I pray. Draw us to yourself. May we reflect you more and more each day. And may you be glorified through us individually and through us as a body as well. In Jesus' name. Amen.